Balance is a myth. And for years, I fought for balance and ended up wasting time and energy on false notions of perfection. After anxiety attacks, bouts with depression and health issues, I had to learn to flow with the inevitable imbalance. I learned that being perfectly imperfect was okay. Disrupting balance is for real women who are exhausted with fighting for balance. It is for you, your life, your experience, your truth, and all of the chaos in between. I am Hanifa Barnes, and I am disrupting balance by finding harmony in the imbalance of work, well-being, and the in-between. Find me, follow, and subscribe at Disrupting Balance on all platforms. So how do you begin to fathom finding harmony when your life is falling apart before it even begins? For Leah Forney, the early stages of her journey were fraught with imbalance and hardship. Born addicted to drugs, to two addicted parents, being raised by her grandmother, fighting her own addictions, and being sexually assaulted seems like way too much to bear. But instead of burying herself in the grief and trauma of her formative years, she found purpose in her pain and learned to use her trauma for the good of others as a mental health professional, published author, and so much more. Stay tuned for this moving episode on how things do fall into place after addiction, grief, death, and all of the trauma in between. And you especially don't want to miss what happened when Leah finally had the opportunity to ask her mother why. So welcome, Leah, to the Disrupting Balance podcast. I'm so glad you joined me this evening. This story right here. (laughs) You guys just hold on to your seats, get your pens, get your notepad and prepare to write your life lessons in this session. How you doing tonight? I'm good. How are you? I am good. I'm good. And we're going to jump right in and find out what is your story. Ooh, that's just, you know, that's such a big statement when you can, but so much to unpack in that. So I am the daughter of two addicts. Uh, My mother was a drug addict since I was the age of two. My dad, an alcoholic since I was nine, and he was in and out of prison. So growing up, you can only imagine not having your parents, being raised by my maternal grandmother, grandfather, and my aunt. And so I was uh, an emotional kid. I was an angry kid. I felt abandoned. I felt rejected. Um, and I, I struggled with feeling like it was my fault that my parents weren't around. And I'm one of six siblings. Um, And so growing up, it was difficult. It was this feeling of odd, like I'm the odd girl out. I'm different. You know, I grew up in kind of suburban area of of Queens, New York. And a lot of my friends had two two parents in the household, right? So immediately it's like I stuck out like a sore thumb, right? Because my friends... They're engaging in activities that require parents like father-daughter dads, you know, and I got grandpa, you know, and grandpa's up in age and he's not going to be able to go to the father-daughter dance. So I grew up very angry, um, always wanted to know why. But I also, on the flip side, I had this internal conflict because on one hand, I saw my parents as a, like they were heroes in a way, but on the other hand, I felt this like imbalance of like, but I also don't like them and I don't like what they're doing. Um, So when I was being raised by my grandparents, they did a lot to try to protect us. Um, They did not 
really talk about my parents' addictions. They tried not to bring it up, but I always knew something was wrong because I can remember as a young girl going to the doctor for a checkup and the doctor asking, you know, are their parents in their lives? And then my grandmother being like, oh, we got to talk about that in private. Like it was like almost like this big secret that nobody wanted to talk about. So it was little things that let me know that something was different about me as a young girl. And then fast forward to probably about 16, 17 years old is probably the first time my grandmother actually said, your mother's a drug addict um, and your dad, he's incarcerated. Um, and I hadn't had no parts of my life. I did not know my father's side of family. You know, the last time I actually saw my dad, I was nine years old and I didn't even know he was battling with addiction then because he used to come probably frequently, like every other weekend to come get me and my sister. So when the, I remember the very last weekend, I never forget it. I was sitting outside on my grandmother's porch waiting for my dad to show up and he never showed up. And I remember the devastation and crying to my grandmother and just saying, why? <laughs> like, what, does he not love me? Am I not good enough? You know, why, why was why does he want to be here? Um, and my grandma just let me cry because she didn't even know how to explain this is what's going on with your parents and this is why they're not in your life. So when she finally opened up about it in my teenage years, still, I didn't really understand addiction. Um, like I had heard drug addict, heard alcoholism, but I didn't really understand what that really entailed. Um, so again, in my own anger, I just started looking for love in all, all the wrong places. Right. I started seeking older men um, for validation. I started. This was, this was while you, around 16, 17. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I started seeking older men for, for validation. You know, I just wanted to be loved and I would go I would go after any person that was willing to love me, uh, not understanding, you know, codependency and trauma bonding and all the stuff I understand now. But under but just wanting to be loved, wanting to feel like I was beautiful, wanting to be validated. Because my grandparents, while they did a great job of what they knew, they weren't really good at those things, right? Because they were dealing with their own feelings around my parents not being there and them having to raise their grandchildren. You know, my aunt, she was dealing with her own feelings around her sister, my mom, not being there, you know, and her having to you know, be a part of raising her kids. So it was a lot of resentment that they had that really prevented them from being what I needed at that age. So I saw it elsewhere. I, I started having sex at a young age, doing all these things because I just wanted somebody to tell me I was beautiful. I just wanted to feel like I was enough. I just wanted to be loved. Were you talking to anybody at that time about your real feelings? Like, did you have that best friend or that that teacher or that person who you took the frustration out on or you talked to and shared things like your raw emotion? No, what I was doing, though, was writing. That's what I was doing. I was writing. So writing was like an outlet for me. And writing is actually where I began to create kind of like a fantasy world. So I came up with stories about who my parents were to escape the realities of what was really going on. So like when people that didn't know 
you know, my family would ask about my mom and dad. Oh, I had this like elaborate story. Like my dad was a CIA agent and he's on some top secret mission. Like I came up with these stories because I didn't want people to know the truth because I was ashamed to say that I'm the daughter of two addicts. I was ashamed to, of the reality that my mom was a drug addict and not only was she a drug addict, but she was doing drugs when she was pregnant with me. So then I was what they used to term back in the 80s, a crack baby. You know, I was the one out of all her kids that doctors were like, oh, she's not going to live long. She's not going to make it past five. And if she does, she's going to have all these issues. Thank God that wasn't the case. But that's how much drugs they had found in my system when I was a kid. So knowing all the things that my parents had did, I was like, the easiest way to escape this was to write and to like pretend that my reality wasn't my reality. So what about the 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 theory around children who are who have or who are born were you born addicted to drugs? That's the yeah. first question. So what about that whole philosophy of that addiction kind of um manifesting as you get older and you having your own addictions? Did you find that there you had your own addictive behaviors? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I fast forward a little bit in the story, 2013, I was living in the state of North Carolina, just fairly new to the state, met this guy, thought he was going to be this like nice, charming individual. He ends up sexually assaulting me. And I went through an, uh, a period of hypersexuality, uh, really being promiscuous. And I, and I was in therapy at the time. And I remember talking to my therapist and I was just saying like, what, why do I feel like I'm gravitating towards sex? Like, here it is. I just got violated, right? Like, I should be running away from the this thing, not gravitating towards it. And she shared with me, she was like, it's so very common for victims of sexual assault. She was like, it's all about control. You've been through a violation in which you lost control. And so the fact that you're experiencing this feelings of hypersexuality is because you're trying to regain the control you just lost. And so when she explained it to me in that way, it it made so much sense because that's where I was at. I'm like, I'm out of control. Somebody just violated me. How do I regain my control? Um, So addictive behavior was big. Honestly, I'm, my grandmother was terrified of me when I got to about 21. She was so terrified about me being the legal age to drink because her biggest fear was, I don't want my grandkids to go down this path, you know? But for me, I was so aware of the addictive behavior in my family and in my bloodline on both sides that I stayed away from alcohol. Like I, I tell people I drink, you know, occasionally and socially, but like, I, you know, my friends will laugh when I tell them I have a two drink maximum because I understand how deep this addiction runs in my family. And my dad being an alcoholic and had died an alcoholic, I didn't, I was not going to chance going down that path. So addictive behavior definitely played out for all of my, me and all of my siblings. We just did it in so many different ways. And what was the relationship like with your siblings? Because there's six of you. Yeah. Where do you fall, first of all, in the in the line? And then what was the relationship? So I'm the oldest girl. Um, and even that story is crazy. So I grew up with my older brother and my sister that's one year younger than me. It was just the three of us. I was one of six, but my mom gave up her rights to the other three at birth. 
So they were adopted and they weren't adopted by my grandmother. They were adopted by a foster mom. So for years I knew of them, but we never had any contact because nobody knew how to find them until literally last year. Last year, August, right at the same time, my mother was had, had, had just had a stroke and was learning how to walk and talk and all of that. You know, God saw fit to kind of bring closure to that part of my life because I always thought about my siblings. I just didn't know where to find them. And so their foster mom reached out to my aunt on social media and was like, I want to get y'all connected because they always ask about their family. And so well, here we are, fast forward over a year later, we have this amazing bond now. But growing up, I, I didn't know nothing about them. I knew their names, but that was it. We had no pictures. We had no nothing. So as much as I had a hole in my heart from my parents not being in my life, I also had this big void because I knew I was one of six, but all the six of us weren't connected. Hmm. Wow. And so with all of that imbalance, I mean, from the womb, yeah, you know, you're now an adult, let's just say mm -hmm. beyond your early twenties, what were some of the emotional challenges you had to deal with? Cause you know, when you become an adult now you're, you're on your own. Yeah. You can't, you know, the idea is, okay, you can't blame anybody now. Now you got to kind of step into your own and figure out what is your path. Mm-hmm. What were those thoughts going through your mind now being an adult? What were the emotional challenges and things you had to kind of come up against as a real adult? Yeah. So the first thing that stands out to me is just this navigating womanhood. Like I didn't, I had the slightest clue of what it meant to be a woman. You know, I grew up in the kind of household where just the talking about uh, your menstrual cycle was kind of like, shh, you don't talk about that. You don't tell them like. I grew up in that. So a lot of things about relationships and, and sex and how to interact with the opposite sex. And all, like I had to learn from the streets. I had to learn from my friends who were just still trying to figure it out themselves. I didn't have those sit downs with grandma like I needed or with my aunt like I needed. Because I, again, I believe it was because of their own emotional baggage around the feelings they had about my having to raise us. So they, they did, they dropped the ball in terms of womanhood. I had to really learn what it was to be a woman by just observing other women, um, which really led me in a path of like kind of codependent relationships with women, because I would easily gravitate to a female. Then I want her to be like my super best friend in the whole wide world. Then I want to tell her everything, you know, and I was getting hurt because I'm like being word vomit, spilling my guts, not understanding boundaries, not understanding that you don't tell everybody everything, not understanding any of those dynamics. Um, because I, again, just wanted somebody to say, oh, you're amazing. And I love you. And I want to connect with you. So trying to navigate womanhood without any guidance, without any tools was definitely a big one. Then the abandonment, abandonment and the feelings of rejection was another huge one. You know, I was afraid to get into relationships because of the fear of you're going to walk out on me. You know, I literally would used to equate love with abandonment because for all I knew, everybody that ever said I love you to me left. You know, my parents, 
you know, my, my grandfather and my grandparents eventually divorced. He left the only, other, that was the only other father figure I knew. So for a long time, love meant abandonment. Love meant somebody walking out on me. So in, in relationships, did you find that you were creating situations to, for the other person to walk away, to abandon you? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I think for, for a very long time, um, I was being a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like I was literally sabotaging and making it so that people did not want to deal with me because if they didn't deal with me, then it proved to myself the story I was telling myself. See, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of love. Nobody loves me. See, you're not enough. You're not good enough because look, this person left. And I didn't realize how deep that abandonment was until I was in a healthy relationship in my later part of my twenties. And me and my partner at the time, we got into an argument and we barely would argue. And when we got into the argument, he got up and left. And immediately it triggered my abandonment. I'm panicking. I'm crying. And he just like walked out the room, went somewhere to calm down, kind of leave. But like, I'm sitting here like, oh my God, he's about to leave. Like I'm going to, he's, I'm going to get left again. And in that relationship, I learned the power of vulnerability because I was able to say to him, when you leave me, it triggers my abandonment. Cause then I'm thinking you're actually leaving. Good me. for you. Good for you. And that changed the dom- uh, the dynamic because what we began to do in the few times that we did have an argument, he would say, I'm not leaving you. I'm leaving this argument. And that would kind of decrease the feeling of being abandoned. Because immediately that was my thought. I would just, oh my God, somebody's going to leave me again. How did you know, what point was it when you learned to vocalize that, right? I mean, what was it? Was it therapy or it just got to a point where you realized the relationship meant something and you just needed to be vulnerable with him? What was it? Yeah, I think for me, it was just realizing that this relationship had meant something and then w- being willing to try something different because all the other times prior, it was just like, okay, you're going to leave. Fine. I'm, I was expecting it anyway. Right. And I didn't realize that I lived in such a black and white thought process, you know, of like this or that <clears throat> for a long time. Um, so for me, it was just like, let's try something different. Let's be willing to open up. Let's be willing to share your heart and your fears. Cause this was the first person that I could say really did love me and they didn't want anything from me, but me. So that was the the catalyst to change all of that for me and realizing that, okay, I can be vulnerable as long as I feel emotionally safe. Cause I think prior to that, I never felt emotionally safe. So I always felt like I was going to be let down and, and abandoned. Wow. I mean, it is a powerful story. Uh, and I know you found a lot of comfort, strength in your writing, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I guess I would call that even your own kind of harmony is putting your pen to the paper or mm-hmm. typing whatever it is and putting those words down for you. Yeah. What do you feel outside of you talked about the fantasy aspect as a young woman creating the story you wanted for yourself because of your circumstances? 
What else has writing done for you from an emotional perspective, especially as you got older? Yeah, it's been therapy. Um, It has allowed me to really process my feelings. Because I think a lot of times, you know, we have this, uh, especially as Black women, we have this superwoman syndrome. And we tell ourselves like, oh, yeah, no, it wasn't that big. We minimize and we, you know, downplay and then we put the cape on and, (laughs) and it's another day, right? And, you know, even in that relationship that I was telling you about, like, my significant other, he was like, he would always say to me, I need you to stop being a superwoman and just be Lois Lane. Like, can you take the cape off? You know, can you stop trying to save the world and realize you need to save yourself and you need to help yourself? So he was such a big catalyst to my writing because that was the first time that I said, okay, let me journal. Let me really process these feelings of being abandoned, feeling rejected, you know, feeling like I wasn't good enough for my parents, that I wasn't worthy of love and really start to deal with them. And so fast forward, he actually ended up passing away unexpectedly in 2018. And after his death was the first time in a long time I dived into therapy. And therapy began to really, you know, I tell people all the time, it's funny because I God doesn't make mistakes, but I think he allowed that situation to happen because he was like, yeah, you're going to therapy to talk about your grief, but you've been grieving a long time because you have all these other losses that you've never dealt with. And so I was going to to therapy at the time, or so I thought, to grieve the, get the death of Joseph, which was his name. But the whole time God was like, yeah, but you've been grieving your parents and <laughs> you've been grieving your siblings and you've been grieving the loss of that. And so you got to unpack all this grief. And so in therapy was the first time that I feel like I, one, gave my grief a voice, but then I also felt like I gave the little girl in me a voice. Wow, that that's powerful. So you were carrying not only your grown-up grief, mm-hmm. but your little girl grief all this time. Yeah. All this time. Wow. So when you when your um boy he was boyfriend or fiance? He was my fiance. Yeah, when your fiance passed, did you was the immediate thought to go to those feelings of abandonment or did you go to somewhere else? Oh yeah. Immediately. I was just like, so you did leave me. Like you left. How could you have left me? And it didn't and, and it, you know, it's it's crazy because I felt that, but then it was just like at the same time this comfort that came over me that was like, but I didn't leave by choice. Because I think for a long time, again, the abandonment was people was leaving by choice. This was not a choice, right? It just was his time was on earth was up. So at first it was the feelings of abandonment, but then it was like God comforted me and was like, "Mm -mm, that's not it. (laughs) That's not what this is. Um, And so I was able to kind of let that go. But it was the catalyst to really start to realize that I had had uncom- like complicated, long-term chronic grief, like from childhood that I just had never dealt with. And I kept telling myself, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. You know, and it wasn't until like my bishop, he would say like, what's in you is going to come out of you. So I didn't even realize that it was coming out of me in ways that, you know, just snapping on people and irritable and all these things that I was just calling 
my personality. I'm like, okay, that's just who I am. And God's like, no, it's not. Like, you need to deal with these things. You need to really deal with your grief. And so that death was the catalyst to finally begin to unpack, not just for me, but to unpack for the little girl in me who had never had a voice and who was sitting back waiting for me to finally say, this hurts. (laughs) I didn't like this. I didn't like this pain. Why did this like to finally say it? But I just happened to be an adult this time. And so in spite of all that, you know, the, the challenges with, um, being with the older men, Mm -hmm. um, being hypersexual in your early twenties, trying to figure your, out your grief and process, working through with your uh, fiance who has since passed, you still set goals and it made um, steps towards significant accomplishments in your life. I mean, bachelor's degree, master's degree, I mean, all these things. So let's talk about kind of the things you've done and the mindset around goal setting and accomplishing goals in the midst yeah. of the thickness of grief and stuff. Yeah. How, how how did you do that? You know what? I think I just looked at my parents. I saw what I didn't want to be. And that to me was the motivation. I remember as a very young age girl, I remember saying to myself that my promise to myself was that I was never going to be a baby's mama. I wasn't going to be a single mom. If I had kids, it would be when I got married to the man that God created for me to get married to. That was my that was my vow to myself as a young girl that I was not going to continue what I saw because outside of addiction I came from a single mother. You know, my grandmother was a single mother, my aunt was a single mother. Like I came from that. And so for me it was making a promise to myself that I would be the curse breaker that I just wasn't going to do what I saw. You know, I was the first in my family to graduate high school the first in my family to get a college degree, the first in my family to hold a bachelor, a master's degree, like the first in my family to do so much because for me, I had to realize, I recognized at a young age, legacy and lineage. And I was like, Mm-mm, this has been plaguing in my family far too long. Like it stops here. And so making that decision at a very young age, and I had to be in my early twenties when I made that decision, that was the motivation for me to start going to school, to get my education, because I knew what my, you know, in the few conversations that I had with my mother when she was sober, like I knew what she wanted to be. I knew how she wanted to be into healthcare and be a nurse and do all these things that she never had a chance to do. And so for me, it was like, well, why not you be what your parents couldn't be? And so that's what pushed me to get an education and pushed me down the path in the career of being in mental health that I've been so blessed to be in for the last nine years, because I wanted to be able to impact change and other people similar to me and to show them that it's really not how you start. It's, it's how you choose to finish. And, and I tell people all the time, we, you know, people have trauma. We all have trauma. It's what you do with the trauma. That, that is the key. And so for me, it was taking my trauma learning and growing from it, but then using it to do great things like write books and be and get on podcasts and do all these things to show people that pain does have purpose. But we get stuck in our pain so much that we never get on the other side of it to discover 
why God allowed you to go through what you went through in the first place. Mm. Yeah. So let's circle back now because you're being a little modest. Let's talk about all these published books here. Okay. <laughs> I want to hear about that because it's not just one book, you guys. You, yeah. you got to hear this. So let's talk about the published books. Yeah. So it started with uh, Unapologetically Me, which uh, started, I released that April 1st, 2017. And that truly is the story of my relationship, my tumultuous relationship with my mom. Um, and, and just that difficult mother-daughter dynamic. Um, because when I wrote that book, uh, got, I had my mother living with me for like one year when I was in North Carolina, again, trying to rescue her. The little girl in me is like, oh my God, my mommy needs me. Let me go save her. Um, and so I tried to rescue her. She came to stay with me. And that was the time in my life that I, I truly believe God helped, held up a mirror in my life to show me that if I didn't deal with my issues, I wasn't too far away from becoming similar to my mother. And he wanted me to see that. And so when I wrote that book, I really talked about the internal struggle of having a love-hate relationship from my parents. Because I loved her. She's the woman that gave me life. But I hated her all at the same time because I didn't like her addiction. I didn't like how she abandoned me. I didn't like how she kept choosing the drug over me. Like, and I struggled with that because at, as growing up in a Christian household, you know, you're taught to not hate, right? So here I was having this, this big internal conflict, like, God, I know you say love her, right? But how do you love the same person that on the other side, you're like, if she don't get on my face, like, you know, like how? And he really had to teach me that unconditional love. He had to teach me in that season of my life how to, you know, love people even in the moments when you don't like them, right? And I and I learned a lot in that season of my life because that was the first time that my mother, and I don't even think she realized she did it, but she kind of freed the little girl in me because we had a conversation and I got to say to her, so why did you get on drugs? And it was in that moment that I learned that my mom was molested. Wait, okay, wait. So, yes, okay, there's a lot here. Did you really want to know the answer? Like when you asked, Yeah. did you really want to know? And did you have to muster up that courage to finally ask? Yeah, I really did want to know. It definitely took a lot of courage. Um, by this time, I, I at least had her in church because she was coming with me to the church that I was attending in North Carolina. And, you know, again, challenging myself to do something different. I'm like, here it is. Your mother's here. This is a burning question you've always wanted to know. Ask her. So we just all happened to come home and we were sitting in my car and I just said, Ma, I just got a question to ask you. And she said, what's that? And I said, why? Like, what made you get on drugs? And that's when she shared with me that she was 16, 17 years old and she was molested. And I remember her being so emotional talking about it. And this was really about a year and a half after I was raped that we had this conversation. And I remember sharing with her, I said, well, Ma, I was sexually assaulted too. And then she got so emotional and the first thing she said to me was, 
all I, I just wanted to be able to protect my daughters. And I said, well, Ma, how can you have protect me when nobody was there to protect you? And that was the moment for me that the little girl and me got the answer. But that was also the moment that I really started to see my mother as a human being. Because I think as a child, you put your parents on a pedestal. Like they're like a gift from God. They can never do anything wrong. And God wanted me to see, no, your mom is just as human as you are. And she has human frailties just like you. And everybody doesn't have that resilience that when trauma happens and life happens, they can bounce back. Some of them are not built that way. And that was the moment that really shifted things for me because I was able to not only forgive her, but then I was able to finally put that burning question to rest because now I knew why. Now I knew it wasn't me. So the story that I had been telling myself that it was all my fault that my parents was on drugs was not true. And God wanted me to see it had nothing to do with you. That was her demons. That was her battle. That was what she was experiencing. And that's why she ended there. So what is the relationship like now with your mother? So unfortunately, my mom continues to battle with her drug addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, even after having a stroke a year ago, you know, it wasn't enough for her to stop. So we, we have an estranged relationship. December of last year was the first time I had to set boundaries with her because my life had literally from that moment became so overwhelmed and, and, and really saturated by my mom. Like she knew anytime I got a phone call that something happened to her, I was dropping everything and running. And I remember my grandmother saying to me, Leah, you're going to kill yourself trying to run after your mama. She's going to do what it is that she wants to do. But, you know, as a child, you don't want to hear that. You know, as a child, you just want your mom, you know, flaws and all. So for me, it was that little girl that just kept saying, but I just want my mommy. (laughs) Even though the adult in me understood addiction at this time, I'm working in the field of mental health. Like I get this disease. I get all of that. But the little girl in me was like, but that's my mommy. I want my mommy. So it took a lot of courage to finally say to my mother that she got to be her own advocate, that I could not no longer parent her. Because that's what had happened. The roles reversed. I went from being her daughter to like, I'm now her mom. And she got a mom. My grandma is still alive and well. So I had to come up with the courage to finally say, mom, no more. I I can't do this. And as much as I love you, I have to put this boundary here because you are going to be the death of me while you're out there doing what it is that you want to do. And so it definitely was hard to do. And I still pray for her to this day, but the boundary has to be there because I stopped living my life trying to chase after her and make sure she was okay. And she was going to do what she wanted to do. So do you think you'd ever write your mother's story? You know, I think about that sometimes. I do. I think about that sometimes because her story is like so many. And I've been blessed to like, I've connected with so many women that have similar stories with their mother. And so I have thought about that, about writing her story. Um, Because again, just learning to see her differently is so huge. And I think so many people, if they could just see their parents differently or anybody just differently and recognize 
that she is just another woman in this world trying to navigate it with whatever tools, whatever skills or lack of that she had, you know, and that learning that and being in therapy and being able to really come to that realization was beautiful for me because it was the first time that for me, it was just, okay, she's not just my mom. She's a woman. She is this like when you hear the saying, be your sister's keeper, right? That's how I began to see her was like, she's like another sister. She just struggling, you know? And that for me took the weight off of feeling like I got to save her because that's my mom. No, I could, I can still love you and pray for you, but I can live my life too. I am Leah Forney, and I am disrupting balance by breaking generational curses. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. I truly, truly appreciate you and know that I am working to build a community of balance disruptors. Those are women who are working to find harmony in the imbalance of work well-being and the in-between. And if you're interested in joining, go to www.disruptingbalance.com and you'll get occasional emails and messages around health, harmony, and mindset to get you through the imbalance of your day. You can also follow me on social media at Disrupting Balance on all platforms. Or if there is a particular topic you want to hear on the podcast, shoot me a message at info at disruptingbalance.com. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It truly helps us to grow and move forward and disrupt balance. Talk soon.